Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, there appears to be new life for the much maligned LRT project. Premier Doug Ford was in Hamilton yesterday and talked to Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. We'll give you the details on that. We also take your calls about the ongoing debate about defunding police. And it's been unveiled that the Conservatives, the NDP, the Liberals, and the Green Party have been taking money from the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy Program. Is that right? Really? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday was a busy day for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, of course, the Police Services Board meeting, which we're going to get to in just a couple of minutes, uh, and also a visit from Premier Doug Ford yesterday. We had the Premier on the program uh, at the beginning of the program yesterday, of course, and we talked about a couple of different things. Uh, and the mayor hooked up with him a little bit yesterday, and, uh, well, you've got to figure the uh, issue of LRT came up, and, well, this is what the Premier had to say. Once we get the support of the federal government, the provincial government, and public-private partnerships through Leona, we can get it going. And as the mayor and I said, even if we can move it a little bit, move it, get half, get two-thirds, get anything going, we can add on to it. Well, so uh, LRT apparently is alive and well at Queen's Park. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Mayor, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. Uh, that was a pretty interesting conversation you had with the Premier yesterday. Uh, you know, it was great to have the Premier in Hamilton uh, touring some of the uh, the businesses, uh, Colonial Flight Craft, and some of the union organizations that are so integral to our economic recovery. And and to have a conversation with him about, uh, you know, uh, long-term care facilities that they're very much focused on uh, developing more of, uh, affordable housing in our communities. And, uh, yeah, we had a conversation around LRT, and I was glad to hear the Premier say that, uh, they remain committed to uh, to that higher order transit, and that um, we were looking for those additional partners in the, the province and the private sector. So, uh, you know, good news for Hamilton. Uh, you know, great to hear the premier uh, listening to uh, Hamilton's uh, you know long arduous journey on this pro- project. And uh, you know, he uh, he acknowledged, and I acknowledge that uh, we want to work together. And I think people have an expectation that uh, governments continue to work together, not at odds with one another, but uh, in partnership. And uh, that's what we've committed to do on on this and many other projects. So I'm delighted. Uh, uh, I want a good working relationship with our premier and our province uh, and, and as well as with our federal government. And, you know, I did compliment the premier on the very good work they've done on COVID. As difficult as it's been, uh, they have managed a uh, very challenging circumstance and managed to uh, secure significant funding for municipalities in Ontario to help offset some of the costs that we've had to incur. And so, you know what, uh, there's lot, lots for us to be grateful for, for the good work of the province of Ontario. Uh, you know what, these, uh, these are anxious and uh, unprecedented times, and I know back to school is at the forefront, and there's you know, lots of questions around how that's going to work out. Uh, personally, I think the, the Premier and, and this government has done uh, you know, a great job of trying to manage their way through it and, and you know, allowing for reasonable flexibility to, uh, to make adjustments as we go, because that's what we've all had to do. Uh, this has not been a perfect science, and uh, we've learned as we, get, as we went. So uh, I'm uh, just delighted to have the commitment from the Premier that we're going to work together and, uh, and uh, in the interest of the citizens of Hamilton, and uh, that's what we'll continue to do. 
Well, I, I, I got to tell our listeners, I'd initially invited you on the program today to talk about the police service board meeting, and we are going to get that in a couple of seconds, but it seems like uh, yep. the premier kind of scooped us here with, uh, with his uh, showing of support for this, because he's kind of danced around this over the last couple of weeks, uh, not really using the term LRT, but talking about a great transit system for Hamilton, uh, which had a lot of people under the impression that, well, maybe he's just going to back away from the project, but... Uh, he seems committed to it. I would assume. Now, I know you've already had conversations uh, with the federal government about this, and Minister McKenna, uh, who's from Hamilton mm-hmm. originally, of course, uh, right. about this. I, I, I guess the the ball's in their court right now, isn't it? Well, that that in the private sector, and you know, yeah. we're still awaiting the uh, provincial, you know, final n- number assessment. So, there, uh, you know, the Minister Mulroney has, uh, you know, set out a task force, as you recall, and the task force came back and said, high order transit is the way we need to go. So, it's either BRT or LRT. Uh, they've gone through an exercise of, you know, doing a benefits case analysis. Uh, I think the moment that that's done, which I think is imminent, uh, it, in my, my, my guesstimate is it will indicate that uh, the greatest benefit overall from an economic development perspective as well as a transit perspective is still LRT. That's what all the reports have said uh, right from the get-go. Uh, so we're awaiting that report, but uh, you know, then then our mission is to work together, and uh, this is the commitment of the premier and myself is to work together to work with the federal government to secure, uh, you know, significant funding from them as well, as well as uh, you know, look for that private sector partner that, you know, in some respects already there. I'm not sure how that's going to flow, but uh, certainly Leuna has been very very active, at least supportive of the uh, LRT in Hamilton, and certainly has been active in trying to get it back on track. And so uh, if we can put that partnership together uh, collaboratively, then, then we're going to have some, uh, some great opportunity. The, the, the moment I spoke to the prime minister about, uh, you know, these issues, he said, we, we, we need to do something and get this LRT going in Hamilton. Uh, I, I've spoken to uh, Minister McKenna, who's, uh, you know, had a favorable response. Uh, you know, obviously her, her heart is in Hamilton to a, to a degree, born and raised here. Uh, but they, 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 we need to go through a process in terms of how that shapes up and what that might look like. So there's lots of discussions to be had yet, but uh, if we're all coming at it with uh, the best interest of our citizens in mind, uh, I'm sure we'll come out with the right outcome and uh, do it in a, you know, hopefully in an expeditious way. All right, uh, that's interesting, and certainly we're going to follow up on that story and uh, and the, the conversations you're going to have with the feds. We already had Mr. Mancinella Joe was on uh, the program last week, and we already know about his commitment to the project and uh, some of the other private sector partners too. So uh, it's uh, it's back on the front burner again, folks. The LRT here in Hamilton. Anyway, let's let's get back to the police services board because it's as you know, Mr. Mayor, been a very contentious issue here uh, for a long time now. This is this is not new. I understand the events in the states over the last couple of weeks have uh, have really accelerated the discussion and the debate about well the phrase that everybody seems to be using here is defunding police uh Mm -hmm. you address that i know that uh one of the members of the police services board in which you chair uh councillor collins asked the chief for a report on what a 20 percent cut would look like uh you got that information yesterday at the meeting the the report that chief gird gave you yesterday had a little more meat on the bones than the the one that was uh, the two-page letter that was published uh your reaction to this and 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 the board's reaction to to this possibility of defunding what what was your read on that well, you know, I think I think the report clearly identified what we we all kind of said at the outset was that just a just a raw defunding of the police, uh, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, there's no there's no avenue to not have that be a significant impact on on police resources. And uh, you know, the but the bottom line is that 90 percent of the cost of policing in any municipality, most likely most in Canada, 
90% of that cost is in personnel, frontline police officers. That's where most of the cost exists. Uh, the equipment, uh, the machinery, and the buildings uh, take up about 10%. So there's not a lot of wiggle room there in terms of, of uh, you know, hiving off, you know, dollars to uh, to uh, to put towards social programs. We already already invest in many social aspects of programs that we do in partnership with the uh, paramedics and with uh, uh, crisis interveners uh, as a result of the understanding that, you know, people in mental in mental health circumstances are criminals. There are people that need help and assistance. Uh, and and the, the police generally is not the lead unless there's, you know, a gun involved. There's a, a personal threat against someone else's life. Then uh, that certainly heightens the issue in terms of policing. But there is already mental health uh, interveners. Uh, there's uh, paramedics involved to try and get folks into treatment as opposed to into jail. So I think the, we, we wanted to outline if if you were to reduce by 20 percent, as some have been advocating for, uh, you're, you're essentially reducing the police service by 279 police officers, which reduces your capacity to to do investigations, to catch people that are in the human trafficking trade and the drug trade, uh, you name it. All the areas that police have put their focus on to protect people uh, is uh, is going to be uh, affected by it. And so it's not a doable uh, scenario at, on its face. However, there is there is room for discussion on, on how do we, you know, do get better outcomes for individuals in our community through partnership and collaboration with, uh, with others uh, that, you know, some in cases already happening, some cases maybe need to be enhanced, and maybe we need to put some more funding into crisis management and crisis partnerships and collaboration or maybe there are areas where policing shouldn't be as involved and we can reduce some of that funding and direct it to uh, the social service agency so there's a dialogue that he had and that dialogue uh, we believe is happening as we speak through the uh, community wellness and safety plan that is required as a result of the uh, provincial mandate that uh, engages all partners in the community to come together and talk about uh, what does wellness and public safety look like in the city of Hamilton. The police are just one player on the, on, at the, on the table. We're not leading this process. Uh, it's actually being led by the city of Hamilton, uh, by the very capable hands of uh, Paul Johnson in our community uh, services division. And uh, that exercise, I think, is going to be the avenue where we have that collaborative discussion, dialogue around, uh, you know, what changes can we make? How can we improve on out- outcomes for individuals in our community? What resources do we need to realize to make that happen? Uh, you know what? I'm, uh, I, I'm, uh, policing is, is an enormously difficult job. And I think I've said to you before, I think this, this whole notion of defunding and creating this level of mistrust or distrust in our police, I think, is just the wrong way to go. I want, I want police officers trained to be uh, socially responsible that uh, use their discretion uh, when they're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, people of mental illness rather than just going to the law, that there are, you know, individual circumstances that need to be taken into account. Other people need to be brought in to, uh, to help in the circumstances of crisis. Uh, there's much that, uh, that police are doing that uh, delivers a sense of social responsibility that I don't think should go away. So community policing Staying connected with community, interacting with the citizens, not being an us and them kind of, a, you know, being forced into an us and them scenario is not what police want, and certainly it's not healthy for our community to have. And so I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that you know, broader discussion uh, with all the community partners and the community at large. 
to talk about what do they want uh, policing and uh, well-being and safety to look like in the city of Hamilton. Okay, but there's a, the concern here, as I see it, and, and I, by the way, agree with you. I, I always maintain right from the beginning. I, I think you know, defund is the wrong verb to use here. Uh, if you want to have a, a reevaluation of what police do and how they do it, yeah, let's have that discussion. But there are two right. camps here, Mr. Mayor, and you've heard from both of them. Uh, one side says everything's fine just the way it is. What's the matter with you people? The other is saying let's get rid of the police force altogether. Uh, and and you know, neither one of them are right. Uh, it, there has to be some discussion about this, but how do you get those people to come to the table ready to discuss and get them away from their entrenched positions? Well, I mean, some some are, are you know in their entrenched positions and they're they're not prepared to move and they're gonna can, they're gonna stay there. But I think we need to, and, and that's why I've asked for a town hall uh, to to have police organize a town hall that we can hear from the broader community. You know, what I hear day to day in the broader community is not defund the police; it's actually you know, why, why, why don't we have more visibility of police in our community? We don't have enough police officers. Let's have more. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that doesn't jive with the defund police, uh, you know, notion that, uh, that some people are talking about. Now, you know, we can't, we, so in some measure, we have to decouple the issue of systemic racism and Black Lives Matter. All of those are, are issues that are important in our community. I think we, uh, we acknowledged yesterday that uh, well, you know, there's systemic racism in in the community at large. So, you know, certainly by extension, that that means that there is systemic racism racism in the uh, police force, and we need to take steps to uh, to stamp that out and ensure that there is a fair and equitable treatment for everyone, uh, no matter what your race is or what your denomination is or what your virtual uh, religious beliefs are. So, that's an issue that uh, that has been and continues to be worked on. We, we uh, I think we need to accelerate that, given the current circumstances that we're experiencing. I think a lot of the protesters are, are focused on those issues and believe, wrongly, I think, that uh, that if we, if we just take money from the police and hand it to social service agencies, that we'd be better off. Uh, I don't believe that to be true. Uh, I think social service agencies need more resources. And, you know, the discussion I had with the Premier yesterday about long-term care and about encampments, uh, you know, it's not going to be solved by police. It's going to be solved by funding and resources to place people in better housing circumstances or funding and resources to get more critical care for people with mental health issues and, and more opportunities for them to get treatment and not necessarily get thrown back on the street again, as, you know, has been the practice uh, of late, because it used to be that they would get a longer stay in a uh, an institution to, uh, to get treatment and help and assistance. And now, more often than not, they're, uh, they're brought there, they're there for the day, get some uh, cursory treatment, and they're back out on the street again. And so uh, there are a lot of areas that need attention and resources that uh, will improve the circumstances for individuals in our community. I don't think it's taking money away from police that are already doing a lot of its work, because the moment that happens, then you're pulling away some of the resources that, that uh, policing have uh, in place to help these people, and you haven't replaced it with anything else to to compensate. So uh, it's a complex issue, and I think to uh, oversimplify it by saying just defund it, uh, you know, too simplistic, as you point out, there's a discussion to be had here, and, you know, we, we have been involving policing as long as I've been here. You're, back in the day when, uh, when you were on council, uh, community policing started for all the right reasons to have a better connection in the broader community and not make it an us and them kind of scenario. We're in this together, and we're going to solve these issues together if we collaboratively 
have that dialogue and sit down and talk it through. To create uh, this ongoing division that we see, uh, to try and you know, paint the police as the enemy, as opposed to you know a partner in uh, in helping develop our communities, uh, I think it's just the wrong tactic to take. I got about thirty seconds left here, but I got to ask you just because I, I know you brought this up at the meeting yesterday about this uh, virtual town hall that you want to have. How soon can you organize that? Well, I think we can uh, we can get that done in September. I'm, I, I, I think it needs to be done soonish. I think uh, you know the issue is live right now, and uh, I think we need to hear from that broader community. So. Uh, the direction to the uh, chief and uh, and our communications people at the uh, police services was, uh, you know, give us the cost if it's uh, you know reasonable. Let's let's just get it going and uh, let's have that dialogue so we can get that broader input and we can take that input and bring it into the community safety and wellness uh, exercise that we're participating in. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger and of course also the chair of the uh, police services board, uh, Mr. Mayor. We'll follow up on this in the next couple of days. Thanks so much for the time today. A pleasure, Bill. Always. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We just heard from Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger in the last segment, of course. Uh, he is also the chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board. And yesterday, they received a report from uh, Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Uh, this is called the Hamilton Police Service Defund Report. I've got the report uh, that they dealt with uh, in front of me right now. Uh, and I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in on this. I mean, we had a brief discussion about this earlier in the week. This is not just a Hamilton concern. It's a North American concern these days about uh, policing, defunding policing. Uh, as a matter of fact, even as they had their virtual meeting yesterday uh, from who knows where, I think the mayor was actually at his office at City Hall, but, you know, the other people are obviously doing it uh, wherever they are, their homes, their offices, whatever the case might be. Uh, there was a, a peaceful protest outside of Hamilton City Hall about defunding police, and a number of the people that are advocating for that, of course, were there in person, uh, socially distancing themselves, of course, but uh, making sure that their point of view was heard. Uh, there are others, as I mentioned, at the other end of the spectrum uh, that are saying, look, everything's fine, just leave the cops alone. They're doing their jobs, and they're doing it the way they think is best. And there's a bunch of people in the middle that are saying, let's have the discussion. Maybe there's a better way to do things. Uh, you know, and I think the chief's point yesterday was well taken that if you're going to just arbitrarily cut 20% off the budget, uh, it is going to have an impact on service delivery. And I don't know that too many people in this community are, are in favor of saying fewer police. I think a lot of people want to see police do the job better. Uh, and let's have that discussion. But uh, but cutting the, the number of people that are going to be out on the streets, cutting the visibility, cutting the effectiveness of it, I'm not so sure. So I'm going to open the lines up, and I want to get your thoughts on this and your read on this uh, about how you feel uh, not just this community, but every community should deal with this. It's a debate that's going on in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's a debate that's going on in Minnesota. It's a debate that's going on in New York and Los Angeles, Hamilton, Toronto, London, you name it, everywhere about defunding police and about the way the police actually do their jobs. So do you support defunding police, or what would you like to see happen, if not that? Here's the how you can reach us, 905-645-3221, 905-645-3221. Star 9900 is a toll-free number with calling from London or long distance anyplace else, or if you're on the cell phone, star 9900, toll-free. Uh, and it's important for us to get this information out there, to have this dialogue. They did have a, a, a commitment yesterday uh, at the Police Services Board meeting here in Hamilton uh, to say that they were going to have a town hall meeting about this. Of course, it's going to have to be done virtually because of COVID. I don't know how effective that can actually be, but uh, it's worth a shot, I guess. But let's do that right now. Let's have this town hall discussion. 
about what police should be doing, how police should be doing this, or if you're of the feeling that we should just cut the budget arbitrarily and live with the consequences of that, that's that's fine. Let's have that opinion too. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Should we be defunding police or should we be reorganizing how police do their jobs? Where are you on this issue? It's going to have an impact on you and your community one way or the other. Uh, a number of people at the Police Services Board spoke up about this yesterday, including uh, Hamilton City Councilor Tom Jackson, who had this to say. It would take away from frontline patrols, traffic safety, senior and vulnerable person support, youth and adult offender management, property crime, mental health response and support, bike, foot and mounted patrol, community relations, victim services. Uh, Councillor Tom Jackson, a member of the Police Services Board, really, I, I guess, just re- reiterating a lot of stuff that was included in the Chief Gertz report yesterday. Uh, so there you go. Uh, the, the impact, uh, according to this report anyway, uh, that a three, $34.3 million reduction, which is a 20% reduction in the police budget, would equal uh, a loss of about 279 members rather of Hamilton Police Services. That was the math that they presented to the Police Services Board. Uh, that's there for your edification, and you can make comments on that too. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Should we be defunding police, or should we be reevaluating how police do their jobs where are you on this issue let's go to the phones michael you're first up on this welcome to the program today michael uh good morning um look can you hear me yeah i can hear you good go ahead okay um listen i i think you're looking at the uh the concept of defund the police in a, in a narrow narrow uh viewpoint what you have to do is you have to kind of look at um the alderman uh, previously mentioned something about the mental health aspect. Well, I, I think that's where we get in a lot of problems. When we have shootings here, um, it's usually mental health people, uh, people that are suffering mental health issues that end up, um, what's the word, um, getting shot. And uh, the right to get ran over. So what has to happen in a situation like that is in part of defunding the police, maybe you take that defunding and put it into real uh, social work type training or bring social workers onto the force. I think what we have is we have too narrow of um, employment pool. We're, 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 we're getting guys with basically high school education, turning them into police officers, a very highly efficient, uh, uh, a very... It's a hard job to do, okay? But Absolutely, right? it's a hard job to do. It's, no, it's, I mean, and I don't think anybody in North America is really saying um, that, you know, we don't need police. That's not what they're saying at all by the defund the police. Well, uh, some of them are. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, yeah. you got people in the community right now, Michael, that's saying, uh, you know, they're saying get rid of the police altogether. I think that's a little no, ridiculous. No, 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 no. Anybody with a brain knows that's not happening, and that's the fringe. So you got a few people on the fringe yelling and screaming. And on the other side, everybody's, oh, defund the police, let's jump on that. No, no, that's not what it is. We, we have a problem. It's systemic. We've seen it. We know it's going down. So we have to do something different. 
Okay, and, and that's not- and that's the discussion I want to have. And and I, listen, I understand this about about you know the uh, people that are having mental health issues, and and they may actually be the the subject of some of these calls. And mm-hmm. I do know that in Hamilton, anyway, uh, there is a partnership between uh, St. Joe's Hospital, with, uh, of course, with mental health issues and the police, where they will actually have somebody uh, respond to one of those calls. But you don't always know that that's the case. I mean, if you get a a nine one one call from somebody that says there's a guy walking down the street here and he's got a rifle. Uh, you, you know, is that a mental health issue? Or is that you don't know what's going on? That's a different issue. Now, it depends on which police force you are. <laughs> uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, you'll let the guy walk right on by. Yeah, well, they have an open carry. That's that's the problem. But we don't have that in Canada. Well, you know, we're kind of on the fringes. Like we're, you know, basically, we are uh, percentage-wise exactly what they're doing. Okay, whatever happens in the United States, usually it reflects in our in our country at the same. It's just at a at the same level of our population. The only thing that ha- that hasn't followed that trend, thank God, is the COVID uh, crisis, or would be up in our numbers, right? But generally, if you watch the trends that you're happening in the United States and just reduce them percentage wise to our population, it, we, we're doing the same thing. Okay, and we have the same kind of mindsets here. Okay, that's that goes without saying. We've got. Uh, I live in London, and uh, there's a, there's been a nationalist group um, uh, espousing their concepts and ideas about immigration and uh, nationalism and stuff like that. So, I mean, we have the same people, we have the same problem, and it is training. But it's it, and if you take some of that money and and change the training. Okay, because we're being tra- they're being trained wrong, and that's the first thing. And another way to do that um, is whenever an officer is involved in a in a in a situation where a normal citizen would go immediately to jail, we can't be suspending that officer with full pay. Now, well, listen, and that's if, a, that's a very touchy union, point. If the union wants to pay his salary while we put him through the legal system then that's okay. Let them do that. But I think it's a double crime when a, an officer is accused of breaking the law against uh, uh, citizens or against or, or going against their badge, and they get paid, and they're on leave for um, uh, maybe two or three years while this thing is going on. And if he's, a, if he's at a, as a certain pay rate, he's making $100,000 a year. I know, and we've had examples of that. Michael, I got, listen, i got to let you go because there's a lot of other folks on here. Excellent points all, but I do want to clarify. I'll let you go, Michael. Uh, the, the idea about uh, pay to leave while you're under suspension is, is a very contentious issue, uh, and I think you should know that the Ontario Chiefs of Police have already petitioned the Attorney General to give them, meaning the Chiefs, uh, discretion to, to implement a, a policy where they don't necessarily get paid. It depends on, the, the I guess, the situation and the charges that are being laid. So that is being addressed. I think everybody uh, seems to think there's a certain amount of unfairness in in that particular aspect and it's being dealt with uh training comes down to it so michael is of the opinion that let's have a debate about this about how and when police are being trained when in certain situations uh back to your phone calls the bill kelly show on cfpl and 900 chml uh brian you're next up thanks for joining us today brian yeah we definitely need uh better training for the police but defunding the police is uh is probably the wrong way to go about it there is there's a lot of waste in the system. You see a lot of, uh, you know, there'll be a bell truck with a sewer opened, and there's a cop car sitting there, you know, and a, and a guy sitting there for eight or ten or twelve hours. So, you know, there goes there goes six hundred, seven hundred bucks having a, an officer sitting uh, watching some bell workers or hydro workers 
so there's a lot of waste. But uh, Black Lives Matter is 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 part of the problem. Like, if they want to defund the police, they should stop wasting the police police's resources. You you tie up police resources in Hamilton, paint the streets, graffiti the streets. It's a crime. You know, if you want to protest in front of City Hall, that's one thing. Paint your signs and whatever, but vandalizing public property uh, to get their message across, and then taxpayers have to pay to 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 bring that back. So, so yeah, we 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 definitely need more training. And uh, but if uh, if Black Lives Matter wants uh, you know better police accountability and, and and they should stop wasting their time, really. All right, appreciate your call. Thanks so much. Uh, uh, getting a different breed than we're getting from some of the folks that are doing the protest in these last couple of days. Uh, 905-645-3221, start 9900. The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, Michelle, you're next on the program. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Hello, how are you today? I'm well. I'd like to get your opinion on this. Defunding okay. police or reorganizing? What would you like to see happen? Okay, so I think people are getting triggered by the language defunding. So when we look at the current situation, that we put a lot of social issues on the police, which they're not really trained for. So while they're calling to put the police under a microscope, how come we're not putting the whole shelter health clinic network under a microscope? Because You're right. It should be part of the discussion, shouldn't it? Yes, because I know as an activist in the community for many years that... These organizations are not necessarily connecting people to services that are needed. So while they give out food, that's the basic kind of thing that you can give people. What about medical? Uh, they, can't, they don't get connected to it. And this is the mess that we have in the streets. No, you're absolutely right. The problem here, uh, as I see it, is oftentimes, look at... <laughs> As our first caller said, and thanks so so much for the call, Michelle, uh, is police end up getting the dirty end of the stick. In other words, if there's something goes wrong, they're the ones that get called to fix it. And uh, you're, you know, they they are not trained in mental health issues. I know they get some some reading on this, but I mean, it should be part of this. As a number of officers have told me, he says we are the de facto social workers because we're the first ones on the scene when something goes wrong or somebody is is acting up and somebody calls in a complaint about something like that. Are they equipped to handle that sort of stuff? Not always. No, they're not. And so there's got to be better training for that. There's also got to be, I think, better screening for the people that wear the uniform, too. Uh, and, and let's face it, uh, I believe there is racism in our community. There certainly is. I hear about it every day. I see it in some of the notes and emails and uh, phone calls that I get on this program. Uh, and I know it exists. So it doesn't surprise me that it exists probably to some extent in police services. Not everybody, but there's probably a, a faction that is, as there is in just about every other profession. I mean, uh, we've seen racism all around us. I'm sure you've seen it in the workplace, too. But for those people that are doing that job, who are there to serve and protect us, there's got to be better training and better screening for uh, the people that are actually going to wear the uniform. I think they could do a much better job at that. And, and frankly, the officers I've talked to are the ones that are telling me that. So, I mean, I think there's something to be learned here. Uh, let me go to, uh, let me see. Uh, um, I want to go to, uh, let's go to line five here. I want to talk to Jean about this. Jean, welcome to the program. Hello. Uh, yes. Um, why don't they consider, instead of taking money out of the police budget, why don't they take, uh, because it's a, a health issue that they're dealing with and they're asking the police to deal with it, is hire 
um, the health people to come and work with and, and maybe give them the designation special constable who who are assigned to a police officer. Well, they, they do that to a certain extent in Hamilton. As I mentioned earlier, they're, they're working in collaboration with St. Joseph's Hospital Mental Health Unit. Yeah, and you've got Coastal as well. Yeah, the Coast Program, which has been pretty effective, and it has actually been very effective at uh, at, at, at dealing with some of these issues. Uh, the problem is is there are some people that get freaked out every time they see a, a, somebody in a uniform uh, coming up there, and they think, okay, this is yeah, going to well, be a problem. And part of that is because of what clothes. we've seen happen in the States. Yeah, they can go in their street clothes. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's got to be part of the discussion, and I think this is one of the things that we need to do is have that discussion about exactly how the services are being delivered. That's really what it comes down to. Appreciate That's your right. call. Thanks so much, Gene. i got to get a couple more in here before we have to go to the break. Let me bring Tom in here. Tom, my understanding is uh, you are a, a former frontline worker and a first responder? Yeah, correct. I was a former paramedic and firefighter, and, um, I mean, we worked alongside a lot of police officers and some really great constables, to be honest, who really do a great job. However, you do see very much that there are some bad apples, as people will say, and it's very much a team mentality. Once you get into the emergency services and you're on a team, everyone has your back. And as a paramedic, I was always happy that the police showed up because they have your back. And same as a firefighter, when they were there, you felt safe. However, I I saw police brutality myself, and I was too afraid to speak up. I was a young guy, um, you know, I wanted to help. I was a nice guy, but I was afraid to say anything. And I think that's a huge problem with what goes on in the police department. And, um, you know, there's a lot of great ones out there, but they don't want to speak up. They don't want to say anything because they're going against the team. And as soon as they do, I mean, you could be blackballed. There's, you know, there's lots of things that could happen to you and you don't want to lose your job. And it's a scary thing. <clears throat> but like I say, there are, there are those bad apples out there and it's, it's not a defunding thing, I don't think. It's it's how do you rid those out of the department, and how do you change the the the, <clears throat> the culture, you know? But how do you how do you eliminate that? And because I've I've heard from officers that are saying the same thing, and and you know what? And I know it bothers police uh, when they see somebody who's misbehaving and or you know, showing racist uh, tendencies. Uh, and your point's well taken. I mean, they're, they're worried about being ostracized by their fellow officers if they do something. I mean, we, we talk about all these programs we have in place now. Of, you know, uh, if you see something, say something. Uh, don't be a bystander, all of that stuff. Well, that has to happen in the workplace, too. Whether you're working in an office building downtown or whether you're a, a police officer or a first responder, whatever the case might be, they know who the bad apples are because they work with them, they live with them, they see them all the time. Uh, do something about it. You know, get them, you know, root them out. Talk to somebody about this. And I understand that. You know, we, nobody likes to snitch. I, you know, that's that's the common feeling in a lot of workplaces. But if we don't do something and say something, this is only going to continue. You're absolutely correct. It's the same thing in, in the fire department. You would see some of these guys cheating on their wives, do, just not being bad citizens. But no one wants to say anything. No one wants to get involved. You're snitching. You're, you're on the wrong side of that. And no one wants to do that. And I don't want to encourage people to, you know, get involved in other people's personal lives like that. But if you do see something that's wrong, please speak up. I mean, have the, have the courage. I know it's hard in 2020 to do this, but the world is changing and we need to change with it. And I, I really hope this generation of people coming up can have the courage to do so. Uh 
great note to end the conversation on. Tom, thanks so much for calling in today. Really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks okay, to everybody. Uh, my apologies to the folks that we couldn't get to. Uh, this is not the last time we're going to have this discussion, I guarantee, uh, as this continues to be an issue in, in Hamilton, London, and everywhere else in North America these days, too. So this is only part one of many, I'm sure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A story that broke yesterday that uh, some of the federal parties, uh, political parties, have actually been drawing on some of these wage subsidy programs that they have passed into legislation. Uh, it was uh, revealed yesterday that uh, the Liberals, the Conservatives, the NDP, and the Green Party have all been dipping into the SEWS uh, program. That's the program that was set up as a wage subsidy program uh, some time ago, of course. Uh, that's the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy Program. Uh, and it was established, as the Prime Minister told us when he announced it during one of his uh, daily sessions a few months back, uh, as uh, an assist for businesses. Uh, who are having trouble making payroll because they've been shut down, right? There's no, nothing coming in. So how can you pay people? Good point. So we all said, yeah, okay, it's going to be expensive, but it seems to be the right thing to do. I don't think anybody, anybody thought that the political parties themselves were going to tap into that, uh, but apparently they have been and been doing it for quite some time to pay their staff. Now, I understand. Look, at, I, I don't want anybody to be hard done by because of COVID. I understand that. But this political parties, I mean, is, does that fit the, the definition of a business? Really? And I've got a couple of other ethical questions, but I want to bring our friend Henry Jasek into the conversation. Of course, professor of political science at McMaster University. Good morning, Henry. How are you doing today? Just great, Bill. Were you surprised by this? Sorry? Uh, surprised? Well, quite frankly, I'm maybe more surprised that it came out in the open that somebody <laughs> found this out. Uh, you know, p- parties are very good at uh, getting money, and of course, they know that it's often... They are, the le- but they often have the view, the less the public knows about where their money comes from, probably yeah. the more they can stay out of trouble. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I think the bigger surprise said that, that we found out about it. Yeah, who, who opened their mouth? What's going on here? Yeah. Uh, you're right, it's a pretty close club up in Ottawa when it comes to this. And, you know, when you start talking about, like, MPs' expenses and things like this, they just, oh, no, 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 we're, we're, don't trust us. We'll look after ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and they're not very public about this. I mean, they give you some broad-based numbers that really don't get down to the nitty-gritty of it. So you, your point's absolutely well taken, that uh, that this uh, this is usually uh, not the way that things happen. And, and I don't think it's a, something a lot of people expected either. Uh, because if, if by definition, Henry, these are this money that was was for businesses to be able to keep their employees afloat, uh, and political parties were going to say, well, we have employees too, and and th- that's a it's a vast organization. We're not talking about the members of parliament here, mm-hmm. but every MP has staff. The party themselves have staff. They have strategists. They have economists. They have all sorts of people that are on their payroll. Uh, so I understand that part of it, but they're still making money because the, the other side of this report that I saw, Henry is donations to all those political parties which were rolling in even during the the COVID Mm -hmm. situation. So it's not as if they didn't have any cash. Well, I think uh, every political party and every politician uh, generally takes the view, if they enunciate it or not, uh, that basically they could never have too much money. <laughs> so they they will always try to find all sorts of uh, ways to get to get money, and it's never enough. It's absolutely never enough because they're always insecure. And we do know, well, we do know. We all we do expect an election over the over the next year. I don't expect it this fall, but there's still you know, even now there's a lot of a federal election talk. But so this has got everybody, you know, on edge as you you know. Do I have enough money to fight the next election? And every party's probably thinking about that and trying to figure out where I can add to it. And uh, so there it is. And I think it's not only the federal politicians. This happens at the provincial level. 
I think I think uh, for sure that it uh, it, it happens and. Uh, I think people would be surprised there too if they found out where a lot of the money's coming from, and municipal well, and tr- level also as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I just want to run a couple of the numbers here for our listeners. Uh, talking about political donations, campaign donations, uh, the Conservatives pulled in more than three point five million dollars in the second quarter of twenty twenty. Uh, that's yeah. when, of course, COVID was at its worst, right. uh, and uh, received transfers from uh, candidates during their leadership campaign as well. Mm-hmm. So it's about four million dollars that they got, uh, and the party raised about six million dollars from donations and transfers uh, during the period in eighteen. So. Uh, they they were not too badly off, a little bit below where they usually are, but still lots of money coming in. Right. Uh, same thing with the Liberals. They pulled in about $3 million over that period of time. So they can't cry poor here, Henry. They can't say, well, we didn't, co- you know, we couldn't afford to pay these people. They, that's that's their money. That's that's money that was contributed by, by citizens, corporations, whatever it was. Uh, and, the, and they used that. But they figured, hey, why spend our money if we can get government money from them? Sure. Absolutely. That That's their attitude. And, that, and I think what it's important, and uh, that we have to realize about, and people have to realize about politics is that it, when they make legislation, when they do laws and things like that, it is so important to carefully uh, have the proper wording in there. So you you're targeting, uh, you know, you're if you're pe- spending money, which governments usually do, you're targeting it to who you want to have that money, and you and you probably should also put in there who can't get the money. So it's 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 also what's missing. So you know, if if it's vague or somebody's not mentioned in there, uh, people go in and try it. And you know, and and ast- economists, I mean, some citizens do the same thing. Quite frankly, sure. Uh, and it's, one of my friends has passed away now, but he was a brilliant uh, economist at uh, McMaster and the University of Alberta, and he would have all these things he, he to, to that he would try to write off on his tax bill. Now, he never broke the law because he never hid the money, his revenue, but he was trying to make a case for all sorts of different exemptions and why different kinds of money that he was that was coming in were, were tax-exempt. And uh, so it was, uh, I mean, it, it was, but he, you know, he, 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 he just loved having a continual battle going back and forth between him and uh, the tax authorities of, uh, in Ottawa. So it's, uh, you know, pe- a lot of people do this in the smarter they are and uh, the more uh, they know about government and uh, you know and uh, tax rules and uh, the economy the more they're likely to you know to, to have a you know be working on it quite you know uh, full time full out all the time <laughs> well and i get that I and mean, i think we pretty much yeah. accept that that's the way it is i mean you know if, yeah. the more money you have the more you want to keep it and, and, yeah, and try to grow absolutely. it but there's that what's those volkswagen commercials that are on tv right now with uh, paul giamatti a great actor he, he's playing the accountant of some i guess rich guy yeah. uh, to try to write this off and write that off i mean that, that's why the humor is, is there because we know that it happens all the time yeah. but these are our elected officials yeah. And we know that you know, they they have sworn a responsibility to do what's best for us, but also right. uh, they're supposed to be open and honest about this. And th- some of these people, including the conservatives and the NDP as as opposition critics, and frankly even some people in the Liberal caucus, have been jumping up and down over the last little while about people that are scamming the system when it comes to things like the CERB benefit. Right. You know, they didn't really need that money, but they applied for it and they got it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to track those people down. How do, plus th- at the same time they're pointing fingers at, at those people, they're drawing government money and they don't need it either but they're taking it yeah i know that's right we see a certain type of hypocrisy here and we say yeah, yeah they you off you you can certainly run out of a lot of examples where pe- there's finger pointing somebody who's doing something and stretching the system and they shouldn't be doing that while while they're doing it maybe in a different area 
And but I mean, I think one of the problems here possibly is that um, we we don't have as many uh, prof- uh, professional journalists examining what's going on in politics. We know there has been a, a, a shrinkage in Canada, and I don't think the public quite really realizes this. But uh, was although some will when they see the, how, how smaller and smaller newspapers are getting. But we we have uh, have you know we have really. Uh, fewer professional journalists than we have now and people used to uh you know jur- and these journalists used to really go over things and they had the time and the numbers to go over a lot of legislation with a fine-tooth comb and sometimes raise issues that have were not raised in parliament and it's just very hard to do that now and of course when you have an emergency going on here too uh, this year it's uh, really swamped i think the journalists to try to keep up with without the government's doing what exactly uh, you know is the fine print uh, you know uh, say and what's go- you know what what really is going to transpire and i you know i do it my own little way so i you know i'm asking teachers who are going back to school this week to get ready for the coming year i said uh, you know doug for uh, the premier promised us 500 uh, nurses for our schools, for over 4,000 schools, but 500 new nurses that are going to educate the teachers about hygiene and the teachers are going to educate the students. Great idea. He said it. He got a lot of praise for it. I'm asking teachers, okay, you've been going to school this week to get ready for the new year, huh? Have you seen a nurse in your school yet? Nope, we haven't seen any. So you know, this, but you know that it's, it's, we we need we need journalists to do that sort of thing, to follow up uh, on the legislation, look look at legislation, then follow up and see how it's actually being applied and how it's being used. And uh, I uh, I really think I I don't know what the complete answer is here because I know the uh, uh, you know the economics of of uh, of journalism have changed and and news reporting and uh we don't i mean there's not as much money as there used to be to pay for professional journalists but uh, but i just but I, the public should know is that the professional professional journalists are really very very important for us oftentimes in the past called the fourth uh, uh arm of government uh, but it's not but it's really you know really for really telling us what's going on and keeping us informed so then we can hold politicians uh, accountable. And and then so every once in a while we got these tidbits that come out, but, you know, they should come out a lot more. Well, and your point's well taken. I mean, you know, I, and we've seen that, that happen, the deterioration of, of, of journalism in this country. And, and it's, it's not just a Canadian problem. It's a North American problem because right. many newspapers down in the States have closed right. uh, because they just can't afford it anymore. Revenues are down, of course, and, and it's, the Internet has something to do with that. I get that, but it's it's all a matter of, First of all, amalgamation of an awful lot of those companies and and cost-cutting and trying to find efficiencies. I mean, uh, you're right. I mean, they used to have investigative reporters. Uh, you know, in, in every newspaper, every radio station had them. Right. Uh, you know, there'd be people whose own – they probably never even got on air, but they were the ones that would do all the digging and the research right. on this. Uh, you know, and, and then guys like, well, Richard Brennan, our friend uh, who's on the program right. on a pretty consistent basis here, uh, retired from the from Toronto Star. But, I mean, he did Queen's Park and, and Parliament Hill for years, mm-hmm. and he was one of those guys that was doing all the digging right and finding hey wait a second what's this clause mean uh there aren't too many of them right now off the top of your head we've got a couple of global of course so david aiken and some folks like that bob fife at the globe and mail sure. uh who's done some really good investigative reporting sure. but they don't have it because i mean the pressure they've said okay we used to have 20 people now we've got five 
And you guys are going to have to pump stuff out every day now, so you don't have time to do an awful lot of that other stuff. And and the politicians know that. You know, they, they know right now that the oversight is not there the way it was in past generations mm-hmm. of politics. Right. And they figure, hey, you know, who's going to know, right? You know, just right. Keep going. I, my guess is, just from the, the stories that I've read about this particular issue, I'm guessing it might have been Aaron O'Toole that blew the whistle on this one because he's he's the newly minted leader, right. and he kind of jumped to the front and said, yeah, not only was it wrong, we're going to pay all the money back. So uh, maybe this was a decision that somebody else in the party, like Andrew Scheer, made when he was the leader, and O'Toole never agreed with it. That, I'm just guessing at this stage because nobody's actually given us many of the details on this. Right. But uh, it, it, it again goes back to the idea that if we as a population are just going to let uh, politicians self-police themselves, we're going to hear stories like this all the time. Yeah, I mean, and also I think a part of us, including myself, are part of the problem uh, in this whole thing. I, you know, I go on the internet and I want to go read all sorts of newspapers, and I keep keep hitting a newspaper, you know, paywalls, and I start, oh, why are they making me pay for this story? I really want to read it. I don't want to win, read the whole newspaper, but you know, they want me to pay pay for it. But of course, uh, what I should be doing is, you know, paying for the the help pay for the journalists uh, who who dug up this information and put, wrote this story to begin with. But uh, so I mean, think I think all of us are always trying to get something for nothing, and that includes ordinary citizens. So I don't want to, you know, I, and uh, you know, political party people. Everybody is trying to do it, and sometimes it, the system works, and sometimes it doesn't work so well. Well, exactly, and like I say, the system itself is going to have to be rearranged, and uh, and that's yes. that's going to be part of the concern and part of the problem. And I know that you know we've had that discussion and the reality. And you saw the story last week where the uh, uh, Canadian Association of Broadcasters says that over the next four or five years, twenty to thirty percent of uh, radio and television stations may go off the air uh, because they simply can't afford it anymore. So it's it's a different situation, and and it's not just about jobs. And that's certainly part of it, to be sure. Mm-hmm. But it's about it's about accountability. I mean, part of the job of journalism, of course, is to keep elected officials accountable, and and to do that. Uh, and because of that, right now, you don't have investigative journalists to the extent that you did before. Uh, and because you're short-staffed in newsrooms and in television stations and radio stations and newspapers, uh, basically, what a lot of them are doing now is just regurgitating the press releases that the politicians give them. That's right, because yeah, there's so much to do, and. And you know, even even your best reporters are at, you know are asked to do you know uh, be work for three different types of media. They may be a journalist for a newspaper, but they're also asked to, to do something for TV and to do something for radio. And you know they're stretched so thin, uh, even the best of them. And uh, they're and yeah, it is very hard to keep up. So and of course the communications industry, the political communications industry, has gotten much better in the sense that they put out press releases that are very interesting. And I, you know, I've been involved in that when I was been uh, uh, working for, uh, on behalf of the universities of Ontario to get more money out of the government. We were, you know, very good at, you know, we worked hard at crafting media releases that provided information that journalists want. But of course it was all embedded in the type of uh, slant we were putting into our media release. But it was, you know, it was really put together very well by people who were, you know, crafting it, had a great deal of skill. And oftentimes the people doing it are for people who in the past would have been journalists or actually were journalists. And now they're they're working in political communications and because they you know the the organizations that want to spin the story, of course, have the money to hire them. And they yeah. hire a lot of good journalists. They do. Henry, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Okay, you have a great long weekend now. You too. Henry Jasek, of course, political science professor at McMaster University. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.